Solomon and chapter 2, and we're going to read from verse 14. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, from verse 14, and in the Pew Bible, that will be. Anyone? Alan, sorry? 679, page 679. Okay, um, for those of you who don't know, this is a love song, and there are two main characters. There is the uh, lover, who's King Solomon, and the beloved, who is, uh, we don't know her name, we know this is the Shulamite woman, and we are reading from verse 14. Uh, there is, as in a lot of the Song of Solomon, there's sometimes a little bit of dispute about who's saying what, but you kind of get the picture anyway. Um, and the lover says this, my, my dove in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding place on the mountainside, show me your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. My lover is mine and I am his. He browses among the lilies until the days break and the shadows flee. Turn, my lover, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the rugged hills. Now, can you imagine my amazement this morning when I woke up, turned on the radio, and heard Richard Dawkins reading the Song of Solomon? It was just a great experience. And, of course, he had to say, it probably wasn't written by Solomon, and it doesn't mean anything, but it's beautiful poetry. Well, you know, you've got a great advantage over Mr. Dawkins, or at least I feel I do anyway, and it's this. I'll tell you what the difference is. When you appreciate this song as poetry, which it is, it is great poetry, and that's it. It's kind of like a young guy who has a picture of a beautiful woman poster on his wall, but has no relationships. That's a wee bit sad. And somebody who, is, who reads the Song of Solomon goes, that's beautiful poetry, but doesn't really grasp what it, it is about, then um, they're missing out on the real thing. Now, I also have to say this, uh, as I've said virtually every time we've looked at this, there is a difficulty in preaching and teaching this book. Parts of this book can be unsuitable for some young children. Um, and I thought about this a lot, and then I looked at this, and then I realized, actually, any young child growing up in our culture, looking at the media or what they hear in school or in the playground, uh, they're going to hear a lot worse than is in the Song of Solomon. It's not uh, salacious, it's not pornographic, it's not crude, but it is um, more explicit than most of us, certainly me, anyway, most of us would normally be used to. There's also a problem as well in that the contents of the book can sometimes be upsetting for people who feel that they're excluded from it because maybe um, they're divorced or widowed or maybe they're, they're, they're single in different ways. They say, well, what's this got to do with me? And hopefully, as we look at this, you will see. But having said that, there is no warning label on the song because I think the church needs to address these issues, and that's why we're teaching it here. Now, the basic principle that I've been doing, and we're going to do the same again tonight, uh, the sermon will be split into two parts. We'll sing in between. The first part will look as the song, at the song as it is, which is a love poem, and what we can learn particularly about the marriage relationship. And then the second part, we're going to look at the song as an analogy, 
where uh, it is, or an illustration rather, where it is an, 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 an illustration of the love that Christ has for his people and that his people have for him. And that's perfectly acceptable in the scriptures. Robert read from Hosea. Uh, you could read from Ephesians. You can read in the Gospels. There is this very close connection between the relationship of a husband and wife and the relationship of Christ and his church. And so that's the way that we will do it. Okay, I like alliteration, so we're uh, going to do the same thing again. Um, let's see if this can get this to work. Whoops. Technology. Stephen, can you move that on to the next one? There should only be three anyway. That's it. Oops, I've got to put it too far. Principles of marriage, being, beware, and belonging, okay? These are principles of marriage or principles of a relationship, and if you're saying, okay, I'm not married, but I'm in a relationship, so how does this apply to me? Well, if you're in a relationship and you know that you're not going to get married to the person you're in a relationship with, stop the relationship. You may not necessarily know for certain that you're going to marry them, but if you know that you're not going to, then it's not fair to have a relationship with someone that's leading somewhere, except you think it's going nowhere. So it's, it, it, this is written, I think, um, in the Song of Solomon, it varies between whether they are married or sometimes maybe looking back or sometimes looking forward to being married. But this first part, verse 14, the King Solomon speaks of his Beloved as my dove in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding places on the mountainside, show me your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. In any human relationship, and in a relationship between a man and a woman, there should be an excitement and an enjoyment of being together. Now, some of you who are maybe a wee bit older and been married for a while you might think, okay, that's long gone. Well, that's a shame because what's being talked about here is, is something that's, that is very, very wonderful. You do not get married and you do not want to be married to someone who you do not enjoy being with. Um, I sometimes joke a little bit that uh, although I've got 636, how sad I even know that, 636 Facebook friends. I've only got one or two real friends, uh, David Meredith being one. I always say that he's my best friend. Um, but that is actually not true. Annabelle is my best friend. She's the, the person I would enjoy being the most with. And I think if you are getting married to somebody, you enjoy being together. Here, even the sound of their voices excite one another. Now, there's a little bit of difficulty in the text here because it says... it. My, my dove in the clefts of the rock in the hiding place on the mountainside. And there are some commentators, they suggest that this is the woman, and forgive me the sexist remark, typically playing hard to get. Um, I don't know whether that's true or not, but certainly the man is expressing a desire to be with her. Wants to enjoy being with her. Show me your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. It's really nice that somebody actually wants to be with you. Sometimes you get people who are married and they live in fear, and they live in fear, you know, if we weren't married, he, he probably wouldn't want to be here with me. Or 
he's working so hard late at night because he's trying to avoid me, or she's staying away because she's trying to avoid me, and sometimes that can be the case. But here it's speaking of just of, of, of enjoying being in one another's company. At the Christianity Explored, somebody suggested that what are we going to do in eternity? It'd be really boring being there forever. Well, I've heard other people express things in this way where they've said, how can you be married to the same person all your life? Does it not get really boring? Well, they might argue, is it not the case that what happens is you kind of, you have this bit at the beginning where you're always, you know, all gooey-eyed and oh, my lover, my dove, and so on. And I was going to say, unless you're Scottish, but uh, you, you know, you, you're like that. And then by, you've been 10, 15 years married, and you t- we talk about, oh, they're an old married couple. They hardly say a word to each other. There's a kind of cynicism. It's, it's, their marriage has become really boring. And I think that if you grow as a couple, then you will find that you can grow and develop and you can enjoy. It's wonderful to meet a couple who've been married for 50 years and they enjoy being in each other's company. They know each other so well. They know the wee eyebrow raised, what that means. They know they can communicate without words, but they still enjoy being in one another's company. And that's what's going on here. Now, the the lover is, is saying, I want to be in your company. And he's also saying, show me your face. Except the word that's used here is not the word just for face, it's the word for the whole form, the whole, basically, show me your, your, your body. Jonathan Edwards, the uh, American Reformed Puritan, said this about his wife, so a man may be affected and pleased with the features in a face when we behold a beautiful body, a lovely proportion, a beautiful harmony of features of face, delightful airs of countenance and voice, and sweet motion and gesture. We are charmed with it. And he kind of spoilt it by adding a bit of philosophy at the end. Not under the notion of a corporal, but a mental beauty. And I have no idea what that means. But the first bit, I do know what that means. And it, it, it's, he's just saying about his wife, who he married young, that um, basically she's gorgeous if uh, you wanted to put it into modern Scottish parlance, she's drop-dead gorgeous. She's just uh, absolutely wonderful. And that's what is happening here in the, in the poem where the lover is saying, I-, I want to see your face. There are things that it is only appropriate for lovers to see and to hear from one another. And that, by the way, is what's so wrong with pornography. It, it cheapens and degrades I love a poem by the poet Robert Graves in his poem, um, The Naked and the Nude. He says this, For me, the naked and the nude, by lexicographers construed as synonyms that should express the same deficiency of dress or shelter, stand wide apart as love from lies or truth from art. And what he's describing, he's describing how you could um, go into an art gallery and you could see a nude statue and it's not pornographic in any sense whatsoever but you can see sometimes just nakedness and, and it is it, there's something wrong with it if you go back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 25 you'll see something that existed that no longer exists Genesis 2.25 or at least no longer exists in this sense the man and his wife were both naked 
and they felt no shame. And yet, if you were to go through the Old Testament and, and the New and take a concordance and look up the word naked, the vast majority of times it's associated with shame, with humiliation, and with degradation. You don't see this in crucifixes, but Jesus was almost certainly crucified naked on the cross, not with a strategically placed loincloth. He was crucified naked because it was the ultimate humiliation. It was the ultimate shame. When people went to the gas chambers during the Holocaust, it, it's pathetic to see people being herded naked, being treated as just animals. There's a, a way, there's something about the human form which can be really lovely, and there's something that can be very, very degrading. It's like um, nudism. I remember we took a camp, I can't remember, was it the south of France or somewhere in France, and uh, we wondered, no, it was in Holland. Of course it was in Holland. I wondered why the boys were so quick um, running down the bus to the shore because it was, it was a nudist beach. And uh, I remember cycling once with Em and Jane, also in, in the Netherlands, and there, there was all these stark naked people sitting around the park. And it, it, wasn't, even, it wasn't erotic or anything like that. It was just hilarious. You know, it was just really, really funny. The human body is actually sometimes quite incredibly funny. Um, but th you have these people who have a nudism back to nature mentality. I actually got sent an application form, and I don't think this was a joke, to join the Christian Nudist Association. <laughs> and their argument was, their argument was that since you've been saved, you're, no lo you're back to the Garden of Eden. You no longer need to be ashamed. So as a Christian, you can walk around naked. And that would be fine. Um, that's not what we practice in this church. Um, C.S. Lewis has a much better understanding of it. In his magnificent wee book, The Four Loves, he says, we are less fully ourselves when we are naked than when we are clothed because our identity and personality is expressed through our clothing. Through our clothing. Now, I actually think that Lewis is, is, is on to something there. But there is a context where nakedness is really appropriate, and that is, of course, in the context of marriage. Now, I do think that I'm, I'm mentioning that enough because I think that there's something degrading in our culture when young girls especially, but also young men, are, are told that they are being much more attractive the more of their clothing that they shed. Well, you have to be really, really careful with that. Here he's saying, I want, he is saying, I want to see you. Show me your face. Show me your whole form. But again, it is in that context of looking forward to marriage. Then he says, let me hear your voice. Your voice is sweet. Your voice is sweet. Let me hear your voice. There is a time um, when you begin a relationship where you do want to be on the phone for hours. Now, I've never actually quite grasped this idea of being on a phone for six hours, but I do know people who've managed that. There is a time when you just, you, you just so want to talk, and you, but sometimes it's not even what they say, it's you just want to hear their voice, that your, your, your partner has a very um, sweet voice. And I, I, I hope that those of us who are in relationships that we've not, yes, there are times when silence is golden, 
But I hope we've not got to the stage when we ever lose the delight of hearing voices. And since I mentioned Facebook, you can't have a relationship on Facebook, and you don't have real friends on Facebook. You can contact, and you can connect a little bit, but uh, there's a whole lot more to communication than sitting at a keyboard. Let me hear your voice, he says. So there is being. Then verse 15, catch rest the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards are vineyards that are in bloom. That's beware, it's a warning. Now, my favorite understanding of this, I don't think it's true, is a commentator who says that the foxes are equated with old age, and he's saying, let's get married before we get too old. Um, That may be sound advice, but that's not really what it says. Some people suggest that it's actually the woman who's speaking here, and that she's teasing the man, but I think the simplest explanation is this. In the Bible, in the culture of that time, the little foxes would be perceived basically as pests and threats. They would come and they would eat the buds of the vine and spoil them. And what he's saying here is that love can be threatened. It's not just fall in love and everything will go along like a dream. He's saying that there are problems. And what's, I think, most interesting in this is that some people have pointed out that the Egyptian love poetry uses the idea of foxes as sexually aggressive young men. And remember that this this woman is uh, a shepherdess and who's working with uh, a lot of men. And it's an environment in which there is potential of danger and difficulty and trouble. And the longing here is, let's have our relationship, let's get married, let's not let the foxes spoil that. Now, I think there's a great deal of us to learn in our culture just now as well, in the environment in which we live, because I do think that the sexualization of our culture has not liberated women, and nor has it helped men. It's horrendous when women are regarded as just objects rather than human beings, and when men think of themselves as studs getting as many conquests in as possible. It is not a matter of boasting, but a matter of shame that the leader of one of our political parties quite happily writes about how he's lost count, but he's had 30, 40 partners. I think that is just really, really sad. I think this passage is teaching us love is precious. Sex is precious. Our relationships are precious. Just be careful of the things that spoil them. There are always difficulties in every relationship. There are obstacles and there are tensions. And sometimes when you're passionately in love and when you're very attracted to each other, there can be uh, even more, especially when you are young and relatively immature. And I think that what's going on here is that the lover is asking, or if it's the woman who's speaking, they're asking for a real call to commitment. It's saying, look, let's be committed to one another before all this gets spoilt. And so that brings us on to the third thing from verse 16, where it says, uh, my lover is mine and I am his. He browses among the lilies. That's the third B, belonging, belonging to one another. I think one of the little foxes that spoils things here, and certainly in our culture, is the fear of lifelong commitment. We are just not used to it. 
There is an immaturity, and let me run the risk of the wrath of the young guys here by saying there's an immaturity, especially amongst young men who don't want to get married until they've experienced more freedom. And sadly, that's the way the culture is going in terms of women as well. What do you think marriage is? A ball and chain. I hate when that joke is made at weddings because it's not a joke and it's not funny. I think that um, the notion that you are young, free, and single, implying happy and everything, and that when you get married, that's it. That's the handcuffs on. That's really wrong in lots and lots and lots of ways. And I think that what is being said here is this, you look at verse 16, this commitment, my lover is mine and I am his. He browses among the lilies. That's a strange one because you would expect the word sheep or whatever. But lilies is a very, very straightforward understanding. If you look at uh, chapter 5 and verse 13, his cheeks are like beds of spice yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies dripping with myrrh. And what is being said back in chapter 2, what the, uh, the woman is saying is she's saying that, um, well, she's talking about being kissed. My lover is mine and I am his and he browses among the lilies. She's looking forward to being married. She's looking forward to belonging to her husband. And she's looking forward to that being reciprocal. Go to the New Testament and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and you'll see the New Testament teaching on this. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 3 where it says this, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone but also to his wife. That's a very radical teaching in contrast with our culture because our culture says, that's mine, it's my body, I'll do with it what I want and I'll get my pleasure and do what I want with my body. And the Bible says, no, actually, there's a level of commitment where you're basically saying, my body is yours and your body is mine. And that's it's an important part of it. Now, what's radical about this in this culture is this was a society where male dominance was normal. And Paul's teaching and the teaching of the Old Testament is radical. In Hosea, and we don't have time to go through it, but if you want, you can. You can go through and you can see that there was a tendency for a woman to call her husband her Baal. Now, Baal was the god of the pagans, and it carried connotations of ownership, authoritarianism, and domination. Some people think the Bible teaches that. The Bible teaches that the husband is the master and owns the wife. The Bible teaches actually the opposite of that. It talks about mutually belonging to one another. In Hosea, God says this, you shall no longer call me Baal, but you shall call me my husband. God says that to his people. You won't call me Baal. You won't. It's not this authoritarian. You will call me my husband. And that's the notion of the husband and the, the wife being entirely positive, mutual submission, mutual ownership. And that's another basic principle. If you are not prepared to give yourself, then don't marry the person you are with. And if you don't want the person you are with, not just physically, but including physically, then don't marry them. 
There's a mutual loyalty, a mutual submission, a mutual respect, belonging together. Verse 17, until the day breaks and the shadows flee, turn my lover and be like a, a gazelle or like a young stag on the rugged hills. Now, verse 17 could be saying this. It could be saying, get to the hills and get out of here. But that doesn't really make a lot of sense. And it is a euphemism that is being used here. Uh, Derek Thomas puts it very subtly, and I think I couldn't do better than this. He describes it as, um, uh, be like a, a gazelle or like a young stag on the rugged hills. He says, this is describing the curvaceous nature of her body. Okay, so work that one out for yourself. It's just basically saying that she wants to wake up with him beside her. It's not pornographic. It's not salacious. It's, it, it's actually describing something that is very, very beautiful. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee. What does that mean? It's literally the day breathes. It could be in the culture there, a light breeze in the late afternoon or the light breeze that heralds the dawn. But it's a poetic image that's saying love is a total experience that fills time and transcends time. And again, it's just about total commitment to one another. And you're really going to need that because when the little foxes come in, when there are troubles, when there are difficulties, when there are hassles, you're going to need that total commitment to stay together and to, to seek to develop your relationship. So, that, even these, these few verses here, what's it teaching us? It's teaching us that it's not wrong for us to delight in the human body. It's not wrong for us to delight in the person that we are going to marry or whom we have married. Ironically, the way that our society treats sex has, has cheapened and demeaned and devalued. But here there is something intimate, something powerful, something very, very beautiful. It is calling us, if we are going to get married, or we are married, it's saying you've got to be really, really committed to that. You belong to one another. Maybe you don't like the idea of belonging. Well, you haven't grasped then, or you shouldn't get married because you haven't grasped the concept of biblical marriage. You're not your own. You know, you, you, that, that's just it. You, you have given yourself to somebody else. And that is, it's in the context of that commitment and that love that the physical expression f finds itself best expressed. The cheap view is one which can never ultimately satisfy. Okay, we're going to leave that a bit there. We're going to come back to this, these verses again. We're going to look at them in the context of our relationship with Christ. But we'll sing just now um, Psalm 23. The band can come up. And this is speaking about our relationship with the Lord in terms of Him being our shepherd, guiding us and, 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 and helping us. Uh, we'll stand and we'll sing this and then we'll just come back to this passage and just have a, a quick look at uh, the illustration that is of our relationship with Christ. Now let's consider this, how, this how this works when we look at 
our relationship with Christ. Because, as I say, there's just a lot of illustration in there. First of all, we'll do it again. We'll do it through the three ways in terms of being. And there is that excitement of being together. Now, I had dozens of verses that talk about this. The excitement of the Christian being with Christ. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferers, in His sufferings. You know that the Hebrew word for know is a word that is used to de, uh, in, described in the marriage relationship when it would say that Abraham knew Sarah. It's describing physical intimacy, which is based upon mental and emotional intimacy. And here, when Paul writes about knowing Christ, when Jesus invites us to come to him, he is speaking about an intimate relationship. That's really, really hard for people to grasp, especially, especially if you're not a Christian and you think it's about being religious. Religion is not about relationship. It's the one thing religion is not about. Religion is often about control. It's about fear. It's about manipulation. It's about trying to appease God and so on. But biblical Christianity is about relationship. And you, you can have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, the uh, Marxist historian E.P. Thompson in his book, The Making of the English Working Class, devotes two whole chapters to the Methodist revival in which he basically says it was a bunch of sexually repressed people who found an expression for that in religion. Now, actually, he's got it wrong. But he was, what he was looking at, he was looking at all the language that was used by some of the Methodist hymn writers. He was looking at the language of the New Testament. He was looking at the language of Song of Songs. And he's saying, this is very explicit. But so it is, but it's explicit because it's about intimacy. And you can have intimacy without a physical relationship. And you can have a physical relationship without intimacy. But here, when we're talking about our relationship with Jesus Christ, there's something that we enjoy being in Christ's company. We want to be with Christ. We long to be with Christ. And let me suggest this to you. That if you don't have a longing to be with Christ, if you're afraid of Christ, that's as bad as if you're married to someone and you want to stay away from them as much as possible. There should be an excitement about being together. And there's a, a couple of other things to do with this being as well. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Now that's a very interesting, the image of nakedness is a really interesting one when you get into the New Testament. Because we are, we, we are described as having our good works, we're dressed in our good works, um, they are described as filthy rags. No matter what you do, they are filthy rags in comparison with the glory and beauty of God. And we would stand before God, and we stand before God filthy. We stand before God humiliated. We stand before God ashamed. In fact, we could not stand. But what happens is that when we come to believe in Jesus Christ, there's a great exchange that takes place. He takes our filthy rags, and He is naked on the cross, and He is crucified on the cross. He takes all our guilt and shame, as we saw this morning. And what He then does is He transfers to us His beautiful clothing. And Paul, in this 
verse in Galatians 3 talks about being clothed with Jesus Christ. We have the attributes of Christ and the beauty of Christ and the love of Christ. That's what we stand in. Uh, Paul, again in Galatians, says, the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Nevertheless, not I, but Christ lives in me. And Christians speak about being in Christ, and Christians speak about belonging to Christ. And that, a lot of people are scared of that in the same way that they're scared of getting married because they think getting married means they'll lose their identity. Or oh, if I marry, then it means I won't be able to do this. It means I'll be dominated by this person, whether if you're going from the male or female side. And a lot of people, when it comes to real heartfelt Christianity, real committed Christianity, they want a religion which they can control. They want a religion in which they don't have to give up everything, and they hate the idea of being clothed with Christ or being in Christ because it seems to them as though they're losing their individuality, they're losing their personality, they're losing their freedom. Now, you read through the New Testament, and you will find it is precisely the opposite. Until you are willing to belong to Christ, you will never be complete and you will never be free. So we have this nakedness of our sin and our, our weaknesses, but when we come to know Christ, we are clothed with Christ. And then the other one there is uh, John 10, 27, 28. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. I'm not going to believe in God unless God speaks to me. What does Jesus say? He's talking to us all the time. If you read through that, that chapter in John 10, you'll find several times as a reference to the voice of Jesus. It's an old hymn, Horatius Boners, I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. Beautiful, beautiful hymn. My sheep listen to my voice. We love Jesus Christ, so we love to hear him talk. Martin Luther, if you're tired of the word of God, you're tired of life. See, I know people who, would, who could who say came this morning as we looked at the cross and the atonement and what Jesus had done. I know, I know people who would walk out of this service and go, huh? I don't know. But I know other people who come in as Christians and they're tired and weary and they hear Jesus speak through his word and they just long to hear it. They want to hear Christ more. They want to know Christ more. You know, you could be a random stranger and you could read a poem to me or say something to me, and I'll probably get pretty bored very quickly. But um, if you're the person I love, then I'll, I'll, I won't get bored. I did hear someone once say that um, they loved their girlfriend's voice because she could read the telephone directory and make it sound sexy. Well, that, that's maybe not all of us have got that, but... Um, it's in a sense, it's the same with Jesus Christ. Some people think, why do you get so excited about the Bible? Why do you get so excited about this? You don't find it really, really boring. It's like you go to church. Anyone who goes to church and says, I want to hear a five-minute sermon is as pathetic as a person who goes out for a date with their wife and says, okay, you've got five minutes starting now. And after that, you're silent because I've got other things that are more important. Jesus speaks to us. We hear his voice. That's what our relationship with Christ is is about. But beware, Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 2. 
We're surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Just as there are things that come in and spoil your relationship with your partner, so there are things that come into your life that spoil your relationship with Jesus Christ. The devil goes around seeking whom he may devour. There are things that so easily entangle and hinder our relationship with Christ. Sometimes you come and God's Word's being taught and you don't hear a thing because you are stressed out your head about lots of other things. Sometimes we are too busy. Sometimes we, we, are, we are distracted by many, many things. What was it about Martha that Jesus said when... Um, she came to Jesus and she was complaining about Mary. Here's Martha in the kitchen doing everything. And she's moaning, why don't you tell my sister to come and help me? And what did Jesus say? He said, Martha, Martha, you are distracted and worried about many things, but Mary has chosen the one thing that's needful. Now, that's not an excuse not to help in the kitchen, and you're still volunteering for Tuesday. Okay? We need Martha's as well, but the, the, you don't let it get distracted. I found it fascinating this morning, for example. We were here, a lot of us were here this morning, and we had a lot of things to do. And it struck me that the one thing that we were being distracted from was praying. And you know, we almost need to say, right, no, let, let's, let's not get entangled. And I suspect that some of you here are really struggling in your relationship with God because the little foxes have come in and really disrupted that. And then the last one is simply belonging. Just one verse. There are many, many, many of them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Do you understand how significant this is? This is no passing attraction, but this is a deep, deep, deep commitment. And the commitment comes first of all from God. We love him because he first loved us. Doesn't it really change your view of somebody if you discover, I hate the word fancy, so let's not use the word fancy. Let's go deeper than that. If you discover that someone really appreciates you, how about if you discovered that they really loved you? From my point of view, I admire their good taste. It changes my opinion about how they look at things. But you, you, when someone loves you, there's almost a... Um, a, a, a reciprocal, a response. Well, that is multiplied a million times when it comes to Jesus Christ. You do not say, I am going to go to Jesus Christ and make him love me. I am going to be so good and so nice and, and so holy that God will love me. You'll never, ever get there. You come to Jesus Christ because God loves you. I will be their God and they will be my people. My lover is mine and I am his. You know, we, we say it and we sing it so easily. My God, my God. How dare we say my God? But that is fantastic that we can say that. Is it not even more fantastic that God looks upon us and says, my people, my child, the apple of my eye? You know, it really, really helps. When I stand up sometimes and getting abused by people, uh, in, in debating and discussing. Sometimes I feel sorry because I say, you have no idea who you're messing with, and it's not me. It's God. I'm God's son. I belong to Jesus Christ. 
I think that's a wonderful picture. Till the day breaks and the shadows flee. I love that phrase. Because I think for us as Christians, we live sometimes in darkness. We certainly live in the land of the shadows, the shadowlands. We're looking forward to the wedding feast of the Lamb till the day breaks and the shadows flee. We're looking forward to heaven. It's why when a Christian dies, it's not that the shadow is turned to blackness. The shadow is turned to, to brightness and, and glory. So that's our relationship with Christ, being the excitement of being with Him, being aware of the things that spoil it, and knowing that we belong. And I just simply leave you by just asking you whether you actually do belong to Christ. We're going to sing in a moment about um, the happy day when Jesus cleansed us and forgave us. Can you imagine you get married, you say, it's the best day of my life? Absolutely. Well, no, not absolutely. Absolutely, the best thing is not to be married. The best thing is to belong to Jesus Christ. And you know, if you're not a Christian, you could walk out this place tonight. You came in didn't, not expecting a wedding. You could walk out this place tonight with the greatest relationship you will ever, ever have. And if you are a Christian, you need to recall that. Jesus is alive. We don't worship a dead God. It is the greatest day in history. Jesus rose from the dead. And everything that's followed from that that affects all of us. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Bless it to us. We pray that each of us would know what it is to uh, belong to you, that we would be aware of the things that would disrupt that and prevent it happening. And we pray, O oh Lord, our God, that we would enjoy being with you. Help us as we go into this week, a week that may have many difficulties and trials, but may we know that we go with you and that you belong to us and we belong to you, for we ask it in your name. Amen.